it is always a privilege to be able to preach the Word of God. God's Word as Creator is what spoke the world into existence. His Word as Creator is manifest when you look at a starry sky or in springtime when you see the beauty of flowers poking up through the ground. And the scripture teaches that the God that made the world loves you deeply. And his word not only spoke the world into being, but his his word instructs us and equips us. Paul said when he was speaking to the people of Ephesus, as he was saying farewell to them, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything profitable. And that's kind of an odd thing to say, right? Because what's something profitable? It's something that's going to do you good. It's something that's going to lead to your greater happiness and fulfillment. So why would anyone shrink from declaring something profitable? Well, the answer is, Because sometimes what we need to hear and what's true is not what we want to hear or what we like. Sometimes the word of God that is an expression of God's love for you, that is calling you up to obedience, is a word that your sinful heart and my sinful heart are quick to dismiss. Uh, So last week, I began a two-part series um, describing what Jesus says to the church about gender And the reason is, I want to carefully, by the grace of God, wisely preach through 1 Timothy when I'm done with this short little two-part series. Uh, So next week, I'm going to do like a little introduction. Who is Paul? Who is Timothy? What are they doing? Um, We're going to take a a one-week break for Easter. Uh, I'm excited to preach a message that describes why we ought to worship Jesus. And then the week after Easter, I want to carefully go through this book and describe how God tells us that the church should function. And I want to sit under the teaching of the word and allow the word to shape us and who we are and what we should be by the maker and creator who loves us, who has given his word as a blessing, not to harm us, but to help us. And if you missed last week's message, I would strongly encourage you to go, you can find it on YouTube, Uh, You can find it on our Facebook page, although Facebook kind of buries stuff every now and then, so it's not maybe the easiest way to find it. YouTube's a little bit easier. But if this message seems like it's coming out of nowhere, this is part two. And so for scripture reading, I'd like to begin with something that Jesus said, and you have to understand the context of this. I am in Matthew chapter 19. Uh, I'm going to read the first 12 verses, and I'm going to tell you why I'm going to read it. Because this is the clearest teaching that Jesus ever gave on marriage. And we are a culture and a society that's very confused about what marriage is, and we have been for a long time. And our expectation is that Jesus will be enormously and perfectly clear about all of our confusing questions. But the people who were questioning him, who were asking him things, they didn't have our same cultural issues and baggage. Uh, And so let me mention, just briefly, what he's doing here. Uh, There was a division in Jesus' day about divorce. Uh, There were very strict conservative people that said divorce is basically never permissible. Uh, They were a small minority. 
And then there was a large group of people that said that divorce is really something that Moses allowed and that there's a wide range of reasons why divorce is permissible. And now understand this too, that in this culture, uh, women did not initiate divorce. So he is speaking to men who have the right and the power to do this. And they come up and they ask this question, starting in verse 1. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him, saying, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Uh, And many of them would have said, Yes, it's permissible under the law of Moses. Uh, So they're expecting a yes answer. Uh, But if he does say yes, he's going to have a fight real quick because this minority that says divorce is not really permissible is going to give him some grief, and their main goal is not to learn what the Word of God says and to be informed and instructed for their marriages. Their main goal is to discredit Christ. And Christ, one of the things that I love about him is he is able perceptively to understand the people that come and talk to him, and he doesn't fall into a trap ever. The Son of God has never made a mistake when dealing with us. And so his answer cuts right to the heart of the issue. And this is what he says. He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now pause right there. Because it's easy to listen to what he describes and to miss the fact that he starts this by saying, have you not read? Have you not read? What is he asking them to read? He's asking them to read Genesis. He's asking them to know their Bible and to understand what God has recorded for them in the written word of God. And that if they had searched the scriptures and known God's heart and intention, they wouldn't even need to ask this question that the answer to their deep questions, even when they're not honest questions, is found within the pages of Scripture. And brothers and sisters, Jesus is holding Genesis up very high, a book that many people don't love anymore. But this is Jesus' Bible. And he believes that it's the Word of God that instructs us. And so if it's difficult to read in places, understand that our Savior points us directly to it. And that our benefit comes when we humble ourselves under it. And so then he describes exactly what Genesis says, almost word for word, that God has made us male and female, and that in marriage the two become one flesh. And so what God has joined together, therefore, let not man separate. So initially it seems like he's siding with the no divorce ever for any reason, people. And so they come back, verse 7 says, They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? It's a good question. It's an honest question. It's a question also rooted in Scripture. And here's what Jesus says. Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. In other words, God's intention for marriage is that a man and a woman would be married for life, till death do us part. Now, I recognize that not everybody is. 
There are many people in here who have experienced the pain and the agony of divorce. Uh, And we're going to see one of the things that Jesus says sometimes makes that permissible. Uh, But no matter why you divorced, I'm not here to condemn you at all. I'm here to point you to what the scripture says so that we understand how we can experience life and health and blessing. So listen to what he says. The hardness of heart led Moses to allow you to divorce your wives. From the beginning, it was not so. And then he says this, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. Now that's heavy. That's hard. We, we live in a no-fault divorce society. Uh, and so if it just doesn't work, you sit down with, with your kids and you say, you know, I, we're really sorry, but, it, but it's not working. And, and we just feel like it would be best for everybody if we went our separate ways. Well, well, Jesus says, when you do that, you marry someone else, there's been no sexual immorality in your home, uh, you, if you remarry, are guilty of committing adultery. Now, this is a heavy and a hard truth. There are other passages of scripture that describe abuse and neglect, and you've got to understand, Jesus is talking primarily to men. He's not talking to an audience of women that have terrible husbands. And so we've got to ask hard questions about when it's acceptable to to leave a situation that is dangerous. And I think scripture gives us some strong help here. That's not what this passage is about. What this passage is about is what God is originally describing marriage is supposed to be. And he's telling men who want an easy out, you can't have it. In fact, you are going to force your wife to sin if you do. And the reason why is in divorce, in this culture, the woman is left totally destitute. So she looks for another husband to meet her financial needs. There's no welfare. There's no system in place to provide for her. And so when she marries someone else, when there's not been any sexual immorality in the relationship, Jesus is saying, you're forcing her to commit adultery because your marriage before God is still valid. And you have thrown her out and forced her into sin. Now, there are layers and layers of where this is a problem for us. It's not a popular teaching. Jesus is the one teaching it, though. And he's teaching it because he loves you. Remember what I said a minute ago? Paul says, I did not shrink from declaring anything profitable to you. Folks, this is profitable teaching. And right now, I know some of you are not happy. Because we're reading a passage of scripture that cuts very close to your heart and to your life. And as your pastor, I want to say to you, I love you. And I believe this passage is profitable for us. Now, I'm not here to preach on divorce today. That's not why we're here. We're here because of what he says next. But let me pause and say, if you've experienced divorce and now you're torn up, you're like, man, is is the scripture saying that I'm in sin? Maybe. 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 I I don't know. I don't know the particulars of your story. I don't know who did what. And I'm not here to stand as your judge. I'm here to hold the scripture up high and to tell you, seek the Lord. And if you need to repent, know that the mercy and grace of God is abundant. And that if you've sinned, there is forgiveness. And that you need to recognize the love of God for you. But do not base the teaching of Scripture on your lived experience, okay? Don't say, I went through this, and so the Bible must mean that's okay. Don't ever use your life as the way to interpret what Scripture means. You have to start with what God has said, and then either repent and ask forgiveness, or 
pray for strength for obedience and know that in it all, your creator loves you deeply. He sent his son to die for your sins. And so if there is sin, understand your sins are covered by the blood of Christ. You are not a second-class citizen in the church. You are a son or a daughter of the king. And God the Father loves you so deeply. Here's why we're actually going here. The disciples also did not like what Jesus said. In fact, they freaked out. And and notice this. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. I talked a little bit about last week. I said, men, men are the worst. And so are women. It goes both ways. We have our flaws that are different and equally terrible. And you see the failure of these men to genuinely love their wives because they want an easy out. If marriage is for life, the disciples are saying it's better not to marry. Man, you just wonder, like, did their wives hear them say that? Like, I don't know. I don't know where their wives were. I don't, scripture is mercifully kind. It doesn't tell us which disciple said that. And, you know, you, you could maybe wonder if it's Peter because he's famous for having a big mouth. I, I don't know. Maybe it was one of the others. In the mercy of God, we don't know who said that. But Jesus replies, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. In other words, not everybody's cut out for single life. Sometimes God gives grace to people to enable them to live a life devoted to the work of the ministry as they follow Christ. And Paul talks about, later in the Bible, Paul talks about how he wishes everybody We're like him, able to be wholly devoted to the work of the church. But that's not for everybody. It's good to be married. The Bible teaches that marriage is a blessing. And Jesus says not everyone is cut out for this single life. There are hardships that our single people face. Verse 12, he says, For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. In other words, Jesus describes a couple different types of people. Some who are born in a way that doesn't fit the typical male-female pattern. And they don't feel attraction to other people. And so as a result, they they have no desire to marry, and so they don't marry. Some are born this way. And, And I would say that's a result of the world being a broken place. God made us male and female, but we all know some people are born different. Um, and one day they will be made whole. It doesn't mean that they're not equally image bearers of God, but it does mean that they don't feel a desire to marry in the same way. And then he says, there are those who have been made eunuchs by men. Now, this is totally weird for our culture, but in their culture, there were a class of slaves that would have been forcibly made eunuchs, uh, and it's horrifying but it's historically true. And so they would have had no desire to to marry because they had no means to. The last thing he mentions, there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of kingdom of heaven. In other words, there are those who are devoted to the work of the ministry, and so they've chosen not to marry. Uh, And Paul would be an example of that. They're not physically eunuchs, 
but they have devoted themselves to the work of the ministry. And Jesus implies basically everyone else should marry. Okay, So if you're not born in such a way that you don't have any desire to marry, if you have a desire to marry, be the positive way to say it, pursue marriage in, in a wise way, not recklessly, not foolishly. Uh, and, and then those who are devoted to the work of the ministry, that's fine. But most people should pursue marriage. Here's what is absolutely assumed by Christ, is that the creator has genuinely made us male and female. And that there are two options for every person. You can pursue marriage as God designed it, where the two become one flesh, where a man holds fast to his wife. You can pursue that. That's good. That's holy. That's pure. Or you can live a life of holiness in singleness. There is no third option. There's no middle ground from the teachings of Christ. Now, I think it's precious and good that he has given this description of what their culture was like in their day and the fact that, that even in Jesus' day, there were people that didn't seem to fit the mold quite right. And Jesus doesn't say there's a different type of marriage for them. He says they're called to live outside of marriage. They're called to live in singleness. They're called to live a holy and a pure life. And, and saints, this is deemed somewhat hateful today. But again, I want to remind you that Jesus is speaking words that will bless us. This is not harmful. This is speaking to a deeply felt need in our culture. And this is what Jesus has given us. We pursue marriage or we pursue singleness. And as we are single, we pursue holiness and purity. As we're married, we pursue holiness and purity, but we do it in a different way. But there's no middle ground. And last week I talked just a little bit about being made equally in the image of God, male and female. He made us in God's image. And so I want to lean into that a little bit more this week. And I want to confess, as I begin looking at the scriptures that my, text, that my message is primarily based on, that I can't tell you exactly how to do this right. Here's what I mean by that. Uh, I grew up in a home, my parents had a great marriage, um, and I learned a lot from them. I was very blessed by them. They'll be the first to admit that they're broken people. You can talk to them about that. That's, that's their story. I'm not going to tell their story. But I had a good example, especially as you compare it to, to, to uh, some of the difficult home lives that many of my friends grew up in. But when I went to be married, all of a sudden I started asking myself, you know, I started reading different parts of the Bible differently. Like, like in Ephesians 5, we're going to go there in a couple of minutes, where it says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. All of a sudden, my wife had a name. I knew who she was. And that command was not like a general thing for other married people. It was for me. And so I started to ask myself, how do I obey this command? Uh, and I talked to a couple different people, and I got some confusing, very vague answers that were not remarkably helpful. Um, in college, we had studied the scriptures, and I, I got married a couple years after I graduated from, from college, um, and had seen some of the fights over what it means to be man and woman, and what that means in the context of marriage and in the church. And honestly, I thought all of those fights were dumb. I was like, man, there, there are way more interesting things that I want to talk about, that I want to study. Uh, this is just a distraction. But when I got married, 
And I started to think about what does it mean for me as a husband to love my wife as Christ loved the church? How am I called to sacrificial leadership in my home? What does that mean? What does it mean when we're trying to decide where to go out to eat? What does it mean later when we have kids when we're trying to decide how are they going to be educated? What does it mean when we're trying to plan vacations or, or any number or buy a house, any number of these? What does it mean that I'm supposed to sacrificially love my wife and lead her? And the truth is, I got almost no clear instruction, but all of the arguments that I'd said were kind of dumb in college became very interesting and very relevant to my life. And there are some of you that this message is going to be like, eh, whatever. But some of you are going to recognize that this is a truth that our culture desperately needs. We need it in our homes, we need it in our churches, and we need it in our nation deeply. And I'm going to stand here before you as a broken man telling you, I don't fit the biblical model of male leadership. I am not always as sacrificial as I should be. I am not always as hardworking as I should be. I am not this. I'm not standing like, I got this right, and I'm going to tell you what truth is. I am a man that has been saved by Jesus Christ, and I'm learning. And my main point for us today is that we need to be humbled under the scriptures and to learn from what God has said to us as husbands and wives, as single people, as a church, and as a world. The designer has given us good information. We ignore it to our detriment. And so here's my intro. And I'm probably going to, uh, the first part everybody will like. Um, if I suggest that men need women, I will get a rousing chorus of amens. Yes, you do. Somebody might shout out, it's not good for man to be alone. That's what God says in Genesis right before he creates Eve. We understand truths like men who are married, on average, live longer. It's true. Men benefit from having a wife. If I say that men need women, we have no problem with that. There's zero controversy. But if I flip that, and if I say, you know, women really need men, I'm going to get some daggers staring at me. In fact, everyone that I said this to this past week as I was preparing this message, they like laughed awkwardly, like, good luck, pastor. And we're laughing now because it's awkward and uncomfortable. Like, oh, shoot. But why is there this mismatch? Why is it okay to recognize on the one hand that men need women, but if you even suggest that women need men, oh, man, you must hate women. You, you must have this, this distorted view of the, the weaker sex. Even though I've just said men need women. And the biblical picture is not that there's a greater sex and a lesser sex. It's that there are two different sexes. And they both are strong and they both are weak. And I want to suggest the fact that we're not even comfortable recognizing that is an indication that we have bought into a lie that our culture has been shouting for at least 30 years. That there's no difference. That a woman can do anything a man can do. You know, there's some truth to that to an extent. 
But I'm not talking about every person and every exception. I'm talking about generally and broadly how God has made us. You know, one of the things, and and it's always dangerous to talk about this, uh, because as soon as you become specific, okay, we can talk vaguely, we can talk generally, but as soon as you become specific, people get real grouchy and say, well, that's not true of me as a man, that's not true of me as a woman. Like I mentioned last week, like I hate football. It's a very masculine sport in our culture. And then there'll be a girl that's like, no, I, I really like football. Yes, okay, like I recognize there are women who like football, that's fine. But generally speaking, it's considered a more masculine sport, right? Okay, so I'm going to give you another one. Um, when I was in college, uh, I played in a youth band uh, and really had a great time, loved, loved making music. Um, and one of the girls that was in the band, uh, it, just for like this brief moment, I thought maybe I'd ask her out on a date because uh, she was kind of cute, she was smart. Um, and uh, so we were walking to the church, and I have no idea how or why, uh, but she, uh, she said to me something about having like 34 pairs of shoes. And I thought, you have what? And I thought, I'm out. Like, I, like I just, that's as far as it went. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with having 34 pairs of shoes, okay? Like, girls, if you love your clothes, if you love your shoes, that, that's fine. But when I was looking for a wife, I was not, like, I, I want somebody that loves this thing over here because that's going to drive me crazy for the next 50-plus years. Okay, like, if you have a giant shoe collection, I'm sorry. That's okay. I probably wouldn't want to marry you either. I'll be honest, I probably have more shoes than Lauren, so just total transparency here. Uh, but th- th- So the general question for me is, like, how much does a woman care about her clothes, her shoes, her things? Like, I want her to care about them. I do. But if that's the thing that matters to you most, and 34 to me at the time seemed like a lot. So I, I was just kind of like, eh. You know, okay, so I'm already just in deep hot water. Here's where I want to go. Listen, the biblical model is that men and women are different but complement each other. And I really want to talk for just a second about a couple that really helped me a lot as a young man as I was kind of confused. Uh, and, And so... Tim and Kathy Keller, uh, they wrote a book on the meaning of marriage. Tim Keller's a great pastor, pastors a church in New York City. And he, like me, actually, he succeeded, though. So I kind of want to be a professor. I thought I'd teach New Testament Greek someday. Um, And he was teaching at a seminary, and he felt God calling him into the pastoral ministry. And so uh, he tried to get his wife to make the decision, and she said, you're not putting that on me. Um, And eventually, they agreed that God was calling them to plant a church in Manhattan, uh, which everybody said, don't ever plant a church in Manhattan. It'll never succeed. Those people, they're they're not Christian. They don't want God. You're just going to fail. And he told her before they went, he goes, look, I need three years I need three years of hard, dedicated work. I'm going to be putting 80-hour work weeks into this church. I'm going to try to build a foundation where the church will grow and thrive and flourish. I'm not going to be home a lot. But at the end of three years, I'm going to step back, and I'll be more present in our home. I'll be more present for you. And hopefully the church will be strong and independent and able to handle that. So at the end of three years, he totally broke his promise. 
Uh, he kept putting in insane hours. The church was doing okay, but it was still a new church. And by the grace of God today, it's a very large church. Uh, God called people, they were saved, and, and it, it's grown spectacularly. But early on, it was very difficult. And so as he continued putting these late hours and he left his wife with way too much uh, work for her to do as they're supposed to share things equally, um, he comes home one day and hears this crash. No idea what it was, but you hear a crash, you go looking for it, right? So he, she goes looking for it and he steps out on the balcony, he sees Kathy with a hammer and their wedding china and she smashes another piece of it. And he was like, whoa, 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 what are, you, what are you doing? Except he's Tim Keller, so he probably didn't sound like that scared. He's a very low-key guy. But he goes, what are you doing? And Kathy looks at him and goes, it's not what I'm doing. It's what you're doing. This is what you're doing to our family. And he was like, oh, shoot. And so he stopped what he was doing with the church, said, look, guys, 40 hours a week, and I got to be home. That's it and worked to heal the relationship that he had damaged so deeply. Now, I tell you that story because Tim and Kathy have the kind of marriage that I'm like, yeah, I, I want what I want. Not, not that I want Lauren to break our dishes. Uh, hopefully, I listen better. Ho hopefully, I honor my commitments so that she doesn't have to do that. But they're strong people that complement each other well, that have served their church well for decades and that have been very helpful in thinking through what marriage is intended to be like. Kathy's a strong woman. Tim is a strong man. And they work together to bless their family and their church. Proverbs 31.25 says, Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. I think of somebody like Kathy Keller. I think that's very true of her. She's not afraid of the future. She's not afraid of what happens. She laughs with confidence because of her strength. But part of her strength is because she has been married to Tim. Now, some of you are mad at me again, but it's true. She's stronger because of her marriage, and Tim is unquestionably stronger because of his marriage to her. And all of this points to God's design in Genesis. So, Genesis is the easiest book of the Bible to find. Uh, you can find it on your phone. I, I love paper Bibles. It gives you an opportunity to take notes. Um, it's easier to browse. So Genesis is the very first book of the Bible. We're only going to chapter 2. So it'll be really early in whatever Bible you have. And I'm going to read a couple of verses here. Genesis chapter 2. The title of my message Today is Better Together, Why the Church Needs Men and Women. Um, and I want to recognize there are a lot of single people. And I would say, single people, the church is where you are part of a family, even if God never calls you to marriage, and you never enjoy some of his design for yourself in a personal, intimate way. The church is your family. It's not a perfect solution. It's not going to meet all of your needs. And yet God has called us together to be family, especially for those who have no family. Genesis chapter 2, I'm going to be reading uh, just a couple of verses here, uh, starting in verse excuse me, starting in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, "It is not good." that man should be alone, there's man's weakness, right? He's not strong by himself. 
I will make him a helper fit for him. I was tempted to leave that part of the verse out uh, because many women find it deeply insulting to be called a helper. Ladies, don't be insulted. Uh, You find God himself referred to as a helper for the weak throughout scripture. All it means is it's filling up what's lacking. Now, I believe we're going to see in Ephesians, uh, God calls men to a kind of humble, self-sacrificing servant leadership in the home. There is a real call on men to lead, but it's not something that creates inequality. Instead, it creates harmony and health for everyone. You might think of that starry-eyed couple where they both say, you know, she completes me, he completes me. You know, we're, we're okay with that up to a point, although many of us who have been struggling in marriage might be a little bit cynical in marriage, might say, yeah, just wait. You know, you're going to find out it's not that great. And in one sense, they probably will. But in another sense, it's true. We do complete each other. We do have complementing strengths. So let me read the rest of the passage in Genesis Verse 19 says, Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord had taken from man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, This at last is the bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. And this is the marriage text that Jesus quotes. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So the Bible's not nearly as bashful about sex as we are. Uh, I was listening to a message. Uh, Dave Goodrich actually recommended it to me. It was by, by Tim Keller earlier this week. He says the Bible begins with a naked man and a naked woman, and the man is singing love poetry to her. And it's true. It does. And it says that they're not ashamed. That this is good and blessed by God. And that the man without the woman was not good. He was incomplete. And in the same sense, the woman without the man would have been incomplete. And not only Paul, but Jesus points to this passage for us to learn about how God has made us. Now, I can't apply this to every person in here, to every different circumstance of your life, because I don't know your circumstances, and I I don't know many of you that well. But here's what I can do. I can point you back to the word of God, and we can inquire what God would have us do in our lives based on how he has made us. And I think there are some general truths. So I I just asked some questions to different people throughout this week. And and these are things, I think you can see them demonstrated in Scripture, but do you want a verse that says, this is it? It's going to be tricky. But let me give you one way that I think men and women do generally complement each other. Um, And probably there are some exceptions. We're not talking about this is true of every person. We're saying this is generally true. Generally speaking... Men are more willing to take risks, um, and they do this in a bunch of different areas. 
Um, when I say that, uh, partly you could think taking risks in business. Uh, when I was a, a young man, uh, I, I worked for a company that offered a pretty generous retirement package, so they offered some matching, so they gave you nothing if you didn't contribute, but if you did contribute, they started matching. So I started a 401k at a pretty young age, uh, and I started it in 2007. If you know anything about the markets, that was actually a great time to start a 401k. And in 2008, when the market crashed, I'll confess to you, I kind of cheered a little bit. Because I'm like, this is my first year in. I'm getting super cheap stock. This is awesome. I wasn't worried about the risk of losing my investments because I had almost nothing there. I was buying while people were selling. Okay, no, no, I'm sorry. I reckon like, that ruined a lot of people's lives. Please don't judge 26-year-old me, okay? Um, I wasn't as compassionate then as I was now. But that said, there were other people who were watching what was happening in the stock market and watching their retirement accounts just shrivel, and they had no courage to take risk to buy more when the market was low. And my risk in 2009 and 2010 and 2011 and 2012 paid off in a huge way. Now, I should also mention, I am still not rich uh, I made $7.25 an hour at the time, so whatever I was dumping in the market was not a lot. That said, there was reward for the risk of investment that I took. And generally speaking, now there, are, there are women who are very wise with money, wiser than I am, but generally speaking, women are more risk-averse. They are less likely to take risks. And you see, I gave a financial illustration. Let me give you one. That you know, if you ever watch YouTube videos, dumb ways to die, these people take just these stupid, stupid risks. I saw one where this guy was mountain biking, and man, it looked like the ledge that he was biking on was like this wide, and it looked like he had thousands of feet to fall, and he's just flying down this this ridge that's like this wide, and I'm like, dear God, please let him be tied to the mountain with a wire or something. Like this is just insane. You see guys running across bridges, and, I, and men are more likely to do stupid things because they think there's some glory in showing off. Now, whether or not they're right, that's an entirely different question. Okay, there are a lot of women that would look at a man being stupid and be like, you're stupid. And frankly, that's partly why men need women. <laughs> because they're right. Sometimes the risk is not worth it. Sometimes you're being stupid. And so you need a woman who loves you to come along and say, hey, moron, don't do that. Let me flip the coin for just a minute, okay? Sometimes when women are risk-averse, they need a man to come along and say, I think this risk is worth it. I think we should do it. Let's go. Okay, and I mentioned Tim and Kathy Keller a minute ago. His risk in following the call of God, man, there were so many ways it could have gone wrong. There were so many ways it could have gone wrong. And his willingness to say, I think this is right. Now, I've told before the story of Pastor Lutzer, how Pastor Lutzer was called into ministry and his wife was not on board. And he, he said, Lord, you know, I can't lead where she's not willing to go. And, and so the importance of unity, guys, you don't lead your wife in a way that's domineering. 
You don't force your, you don't say like, this is God's call in my life. Get behind me, woman. That's, that's not it at all. Not in a million years. But the understanding that sometimes we need to take risks is helpful and beneficial for women who are maybe a little bit more hesitant to take the risk. Okay, so sometimes the recklessness ends up being kind of fun. And this is one area that, that Lauren and I have struggled in a little bit. I, like, I remember when we were first married, uh, we, we took a, a ride on a tandem bicycle. Um, and we were riding, if you've ever been on Belford over here, Belford between North Holly and Dixie, there are a couple fantastic hills. And my perspective of riding on a bicycle down a hill is this is when you pedal your hardest. When, when I used to go down this hill on my own, on my mountain bike, I had a speedometer, and my goal, I wanted to get to 50. I really wanted to get to 50, and I thought that I could do it. And it was kind of dumb, because all I had was like a little bicycle helmet. I probably would have broken my neck if I'd fallen, and it's gravel, so it was dangerous. Uh, but that was just my, des- like, I loved going fast. I loved the wind in my face. I loved the experience, the thrill, the rush of it. Lauren's view of how you go down a hill on a bike is you take your feet off the pedals and just enjoy the ride. Why would you work hard when gravity is doing the work for you? Um, and I see some of you are nodding. Some of you men are nodding. They're like, exactly, why would you? I'm not saying every man feels the same way here, generally speaking. So when we were tied together on a tandem bicycle... I was pedaling like a maniac, and the, the bicycles, it's like a 1960s Schwinn. It weighs like 5,000 pounds. So the bicycle is already causing us to go fast, and I'm pedaling like a maniac, and she's like, what are you doing? But in the end, now she didn't have fun on the hill. That didn't, that didn't change her mind. But in the end, our ability to enjoy bicycling together is something that did enrich her. She still doesn't want to go crazy fast, but she's more likely to enjoy the experience. She's more likely to say, yeah, we could do that. Yeah, let's do that again. Uh, and I have learned that my recklessness in cycling is not healthy or beneficial for our relationship, and so I don't push as hard. I, I, I don't try to break the sound barrier when we're going to get Coke at, at the corner store. And that's kind of a goofy illustration, but it applies when you're buying a house or taking a job. It applies in so many areas of life. Men are more willing to take risks, typically. Women are less willing to take the risks. And here's where I do want to be more specific and hopefully even more biblically grounded than just talking about a general truth of how we complement each other in this way. Okay, so that's to illustrate the general truth. We're better together. Women help men live longer by avoiding foolish and reckless risk. Women help, sorry, men help women enjoy the rewards that sometimes come with risk. Here's the problem. Uh, I was talking to a lady this week, and, and she reminded me, some of you have heard about the shooter down in Atlanta that, that went and targeted a bunch of women at some Asian, uh, Asian massage parlors because he said he was eliminating temptation, so he just murdered a bunch of people. And, and the question then becomes, okay, how is that guy acting like a man? And, and the answer is he's not. And the problem is, I'd love to say, that's what a non-Christian man acts like. He's selfish, he treats women as sexual objects, he's violent, he's dangerous, he's a predator, but Christian men are different. And unfortunately, the truth is, Christian men are not always different. Uh, Sometimes Christian men are still self-serving, 
lust-obsessed, violent, and abusive. In fact, we learned about, tragically, just a couple of weeks ago, a man that many people looked up to and admired, Ravi Zacharias. Everybody thought he was the best of the best, a great godly man. And it turns out he'd been abusing women secretly for decades. Had a terrible sex addiction, and addiction makes it sound like it wasn't his fault, like somehow he couldn't control it. We don't totally understand, because he died, so we can't ask him questions. And he was a respected leader within the church that people loved deeply. Some of his books helped me as a young guy ask hard questions about what I believe about Jesus. And you all know horror stories of different pastors and different churches. Our church has had sexual abuse happen in the church. And so this is not something that's out there. It's a problem that broken men deal with even in the church. And so I can't stand before you and say, guys, if we just do what the Bible says, we won't have problems. Like in one sense, that's true. The problem is none of us can do what the Bible says. This is why we again and again go back to Christ and ask for his redemption. So the problem is unredeemed men are lazy, idolatrous, and abusive, and they take what is not theirs. And and I really wish I could say that within the church we don't have that problem, but we do have that problem within the church. And so I'll say a word to to us men a little bit at the end of this message, but I want to say just a second about what redeemed men behave like. Redeemed men are sacrificial They put themselves last. They are hardworking. They are joyful. They seek to provide for the physical, emotional, intellectual, and spiritual needs in the homes. And of course, yes, women do all of those things. But a redeemed man won't force his wife to go first in any of them. She shouldn't have to go first. The purpose of godly leadership is so that women are cherished and served, not so that men get to have their way. And let me give you one example of what that's like, and and, uh, maybe I'll end up finishing this next week. When our kids started to be old enough to have school, to to go to school, we, like every parent, try to figure out what are we going to do with these kids? We have these kids. They got to be educated. Go somewhere, right? And let me pause. Uh, Like, I believe that as a Christian, you can be a faithful Christian no matter how you educate your kids. This is not an issue of how, what the Bible commands. This is an issue of wisdom. All I'm doing is I want to talk about how Lauren and I made the decision, okay? So we thought through what are your three standard options, right? Okay, there's public school, there's private school, there's homeschooling. Holly has Holly Academy, so there's a charter school as well, so we had an extra option to kind of consider. And here's what I did not do. I did not shrug my shoulders and say, I don't know, I'm fine with whatever, figure it out, okay? That is the opposite of leadership. That is a failure of leadership. I also did not say, The best choice is for us to homeschool, so this is what we're going to do. Go do it. Okay, that's the opposite failure of leadership. That's domineering. Here's what I did. Um, I had read years ago, before our kids were old enough for school, about an organization called Classical Conversations. There were some things that I really liked about it. I'm not going to tell you, but if you're curious, I'll tell you later. But there were things that I really liked about it. And so I chose to just bring that to the table said, hey, it's a little different than how either of us went to school, uh, and it also gives us a couple things that I think we probably couldn't get anywhere else, and I'd like to consider this. 
Uh, and we talked a lot about whether or not we wanted to, to take advantage of the, the public schools. We've got some great teachers. We've got a, a great principal uh, over at Holly L. And, and, and great people that I don't know. So I'm not knocking public schools, but for different reasons, we decided that the right thing for us was to homeschool and bringing different options to the table. The first year that we did it, uh, Lauren brought in some Abeka curriculum that she was familiar with and, and struggled a little bit. And I felt like I wasn't very helpful because I hadn't gone through the curriculum, I hadn't picked it, I wasn't familiar with it. I felt like I couldn't jump in and lead there. And so the second year that we tried this, I, because I have a little bit of flexibility, changed my day off and said, okay, let's do classical conversations and I want to tutor because that way I know what's going to be happening every week with our kids. If you're sick, if you need a day off or something happens, I can jump in and make sure the school still happens. And so we as a team tried different things, brought different things to the table and the number one question was not, what do I want to do? And it also wasn't, what does she want to do? The number one question is, what is best for our children and for our family, and how do we make that happen? How do we rearrange our schedule? What would we, I'll be honest, like there are things that I really like about tutoring on Tuesdays, it's my day off now, but I also, it's hard because it's my day off, and, I, and I've got a half a day's work that takes preparation, and it's kind of exhausting, and so it's a strain. It's not an easy thing, but the way that we make decisions is I try to bring things to the table first for us to consider together, and I take my wife into account. My goal is to make an environment where she can thrive and do well. If I don't take her into account, I'm completely failing as a husband. So biblical leadership provides in intellectual, spiritual, emotional, and physical ways. You bring ideas to the table. You make sure that physical needs are met in terms of food and money. And of course, yes, women help with all of these things. But I didn't sit back and say, okay, this is what I want. Make it happen. I brought ideas to the table. That's part of what leadership does. Women, can you do this? Yes, absolutely. Can you do it better than some men? Absolutely. Can you do it better than most men? Maybe. But that's part of the wisdom in knowing who to marry. Don't marry somebody that's not going to work well, whether you're a man or a woman. And so, I've said a word about men. I've said a word about unredeemed men. I've said a word about redeemed men. Let me say a word about unredeemed women. Um, okay, so I, this is the part that's maybe the most dangerous. Um, unredeemed women, and you can see this in Genesis 3, after the fall, unredeemed women grab for power and can be manipulative with their sexuality. So if men are abusive, women also can be abusive. It's not as common. Again, we're talking generally. We're not talking everyone. If men are abusive, women can be manipulative, and they can be manipulative for different reasons. I'm not saying every woman is a predator. That's not true. Sometimes women are manipulative because they're looking for acceptance and love, and that's also wrong. But maybe there is something more sinister. The Bible does warn about women who try to meet their own needs, and it's wrong. It's wrong. Our world wants us to believe that women are powerful and they can use whatever is at their disposable to get what they want. 
our world tries to force women into a mold into how they have to look. And they're supposed to use their looks to their own advantage, and why wouldn't you? Well, part of the reason is you're called to a life of holiness and purity. You're called to a life of modesty where you point people to Christ, not to yourself. And so if that's an unredeemed woman, redeemed women affirm godly leadership and they receive and they nurture strength and leadership from men in appropriate ways. I'm going to give you one scripture passage to think this through with. Um, 1 Samuel 25. 1 Samuel 25. For the sake of time, we can't go there. I can't walk you through it. I'm just going to tell you a little bit about it. Look it up later. Maybe you're familiar with the story already. Uh, David has been anointed as king. He's asked this man named Nabal to, to basically feed his company of men. Nabal says, forget you. Absolutely not. I'm not doing it. And David says, all right, I'm going to kill you all. True story. Um, Nabal's wife, Abigail recognizing how stupid her husband is and that they're all going to be dead, runs to David and pleads on behalf of the household that David, who is the rightful king, who should have been able to ask for provision from Nabal, have mercy on them. Abigail, I believe, is a solid biblical example of a godly woman who is married to a godless man. You might say she totally disrespected her husband. In one sense, maybe she did. She also saved his life. And here's what I want to really point you to. When she talks to David, she doesn't seduce him. She doesn't try to overpower him. She talks to him in ways that recognizes that he is God's anointed king. He is the authority in the relationship. And in her winsome attitude... She prevents David from sinning against God in reacting to the situation violently. And ultimately, David ends up marrying her because when Nabal finds out how close he came to dying, he has a panic attack and does die. Abigail is a good illustration of a godly woman who has wisdom and strength, but also the kind of character that responds rightly to godly authority, even when David is not being godly in that moment. So there's one illustration. I think it's helpful. That's my first point, and it's 1145. Let me give you one more quickly, and I'll close. We are better together. We are also better in love. Okay, the Bible treats marriage as a good thing. In fact, it's such a good thing that if you don't enjoy it, you feel robbed. Uh, and there's an entire book of the Bible that's devoted to love poetry, and it's pretty graphic and explicit. It'll make you uncomfortable if you read it and, and you don't know what to do with it. And I think part of the problem that we have at the church today is that we've been so bashful in talking about sexuality that people just go elsewhere to figure it out and then they follow ideas that are contrary to the word of God and contrary to how God has designed us and blessed us. So I want to point out just briefly, I'm not going to read the parts that would make us blush. You can do that later. But Song of Solomon chapter 8, I just want to read verses 6 and 7. Song of Solomon 8, 6 says, Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. 
For love is strong as death, and jealousy is fierce as the grave. It flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. Now think about the last thing that was in that verse, okay? If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. Our culture is obsessed with power, okay? And, and, and imbalances of power. So if a wealthy man uses his wealth to try to get a woman, we rightly despise him because it's contrary to how we're made. It's contrary to real love. If you buy love, it's not love. Love is a gift from both sides, and so if a man wants to be loved, he has to understand, understand how to love a woman. He has to understand what it means to sacrificially lead. Otherwise, he will not be lovable. And there's nothing he can do to try to force someone to love him. The beauty of this kind of love is that it's completely exclusive the beloved, this is saying by a woman, says, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. In other words, you're not going to go somewhere else. It's going to be me and you forever. That's it. Just the two of us. And that's the ideal. Some of the people that we love and admire the most, some of the funerals that, that I, in one sense, love doing the most, is when a couple has been married for 60, 60 years or, or sometimes even more. And where they've had that sweet, perfect union, where they loved each other so deeply. And, and the, the funeral is like deeply sad because it's come to an end. And yet at the same time, it's so beautiful because of the length of time that they've loved each other and how much they enjoyed and prospered together. And you can see the fruit of their love in healthy children. And you're like, oh, shoot, man, I wish I could be part of this family. And for those of you who have missed that, you feel like something is broken, and it's because something is broken. Now, I want to say to you, man, there are single people that, that are never getting married. There are people who are divorced. There are people who are in struggling and failing marriages, and, and you all feel this brokenness. I'm, I'm here to tell you that this is the beautiful ideal for what God has made us for, and if you miss it in this life, but you know Jesus Christ, you are not going to miss the happy, joyful, wholesome family of God. That the family of God today should help you fulfill some of your longings, not all of it, but one day you will never be disappointed ever again. And so if we're better in love, I would say a word to, to single people. Number one, pursue purity in your life now. Don't do things that encourage you to be lustful in your heart, whether you're a man or a woman. Pursue purity in how you dress and in how you date and in how you interact with the opposite sex. Pursue marriage. If you have a desire to be married, you probably will not get married unless you date so figure out a way to go on some dates. Figure out a way to meet some people. And do so in purity. And unless God has given you a desire to be totally devoted to, to the church, you probably should try to pursue marriage. Now, maybe there'll come a place where you're saying, no, I'm not for me, and that's okay. Marriage is not the greatest good, but single people, it, it is good. 
Don't be foolish. Don't be in too much of a hurry, but be willing to pursue it. And church, I would encourage us to be the family of God for everyone. If you know people that can't have kids because they're not going to be able to have kids, have them over and let them enjoy your kids in a healthy, safe way. Man, shoot, you can twist anything. Make sure that we are the family for those who have no family. Make sure that the love that's strong of death is able to be tasted throughout the entire church. And then finally, if we're better together and we're better in love, we are better in the church. And I'll say more about this next week. I'm going to change a little bit of how I finish this. Uh, But I do want to point to Ephesians chapter 5, and I'll I'll close here. Ephesians chapter 5. I believe the reason that God designed us as male and female to be in relationship, both bearing his image, both equal before him, is because he wants us to understand what he's like. And Paul says in Ephesians 5 verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. This is where I get that husbands and and men are supposed to be sacrificial because Christ is sacrificial. He pursues the bride and, and men, you should be leading in pursuing your wife. Verse 27, speaking of Christ, that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. Now pause. How many of you have heard of man flu? Is that a thing in your house? Like, the guy gets sick and he's a big baby? That's partly because... He already loves his own body, and he's trying to take care of it. Like, oh, man, I just need to sleep for a week. You know, oh, man, I need you to bring me this food or whatever. He's taking care of his body. Okay, reimagine man flu as instructions for how you're supposed to take care of your wife. If you put everything on hold to try to get your own body back to health, man, you need to be willing to put everything on hold to love and cherish and care for your wife. Paul is literally saying you are to love your wife the same way you would normally selfishly love yourself, but you are to selflessly give yourself for her the same way Christ gave himself for the church. And he says this, Therefore, again, quoting Genesis, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Saints, he's saying that our marriages ultimately reflect what God thinks of the church. Christ loves the church, sacrifices himself for her. He purifies her. She is a beautiful bride. It's easy to bash the church and to say bad things about her, but you know who doesn't bash his wife? Jesus. He loves her. He is purifying her. When he returns, she is going to be his beautiful, spotless bride, and no one will be able to criticize her entirely because of what Christ has done for her. And so, saints, the way that we relate to each other in our homes and in our church says a lot about who God is. It says a lot. That's what Paul is teaching here. 
And unfortunately, we've gotten this wrong for so long. The church has not always functioned this way. Men have acted with pride and self-pity and fear and laziness. And, and instead of serving others, they have served themselves. And instead of boldly leading, they have neglected and done nothing. Many men refuse to grow spiritually, and so both in the church and in the home, they allow their wives or the women in the church to lead in ways that they shouldn't have to. It's not that they're not capable. It's not that they can't. It's that they shouldn't have to. Some of you have seen in the news, there's a church in Canada that, and I don't want to argue about whether they were right or wrong, but they decided they were going to defy some of the lockdown orders that said churches couldn't meet. And as a result, their pastor, James Coates, ended up going to jail. You can read some of the stuff that his wife said online, but she was just gushing over the moon with pride for her husband. She said, I, I'm not angry at him. I love him even more. He's doing what he believes is right. And she stepped up and led their family as long as he was in jail. He's supposed to be released pretty soon. His leadership in the home and in the church made it so that she didn't have to go to jail. Could she have gone to jail? Yeah, I'm sure the Canadians would be happy to lock anybody up. But she didn't have to because her husband was willing to lead. And saints, I believe that that's a model for us. I believe that's right and appropriate. It's not about being more competent or capable. It's about who's going to take the heaviest hits and who should have to take them. And I believe that this says a lot about our church. Here's the thing. If we believe that men don't need women, what we are implying is that Christ doesn't care about the church, that he doesn't want her, period. So if you become a man that says, you know what, I'm good, I, like, I just hate women, they've hurt me in different ways, and I, and I know a couple of men who are like that, who have been victims of abuse in different ways, and, and it's possible. If you allow yourself to be so hurt by women Ultimately, your life says Christ could care less about the church. And women, if you ultimately say, I don't need a man, I don't want a man. Now again, I admit, okay, some of us are called to singleness. That's fine. But if you have an attitude or a disposition that says, I don't need a man, I don't want a man, here's what you're saying. You are ultimately saying that Christ is not needed by the church. Saying that the bride has no interest in the groom that the church is fine as she is and doesn't need the blood of Christ to wash her and purify her. And that's heresy. And so I don't want to force anything on anybody. What I want to do is point people to the word of God and say, look, you don't have to get married. If you don't get married, you are going to miss out on something good. And, and, and that's okay. Maybe that's your calling. But don't let your life become a lie that says untrue things about Christ and the church. Recognize you are missing out on something that is good, that God has made this good. And church, whether it's here in this building and how we organize our leadership, or whether it's in our homes, let's look to the word of God to discover how we are supposed to lead. And I want to leave you with one, one illustration, and then I'll pray for us. Um, there's a guy named B.B. Warfield. B.B. Warfield uh, taught at Princeton. I actually, I didn't look at the school. I'm pretty sure it's Princeton. Uh, about 100 years ago. Uh, and I first became aware of some of his work because he wrote this giant paper 
on the different words for love in Greek. Um, and I had earned a master's degree in linguistics. I took Greek in college. I'm well, well educated to understand this guy's work. And knowing when he wrote, my initial assumption was his work was probably going to be trash. Um, partly because they were learning so much about Greek. They were doing great foundational work, but they were still pretty ignorant because the church for 1,500 years hadn't bothered to study Greek. And so when I started reading B.B. Warfield, I was not expecting much. I was expecting this is going to be like a great foundation, but just take it critically. And I was blown away. His scholarship was incredible. He was literally a hundred years ahead of his time. He was careful. He was wise. He was brilliant. And so I was listening to a podcast a couple of weeks ago, and this guy started talking about B.B. Warfield. I thought, oh man, he's a brilliant guy. And he started talking about B.B. Warfield's life how as a young man, he, he went to study, and, and he was truly gifted and absolutely brilliant. And before he got a career, he, he married this young woman. And they go on their honeymoon to Europe. They're a little bit wealthy. They're able to do this. And on their honeymoon, okay, they've been married for a couple of days, his wife is struck by lightning and lives, and she's paralyzed for the rest of her life. And so for over 30 years, B.B. Warfield, this guy that I've just deeply admired as a scholar, cares for his wife so that he was never away from their house for more than two hours. He loved her and was devoted to her in a deeply sacrificial way. And his love is a perfect example of how we are to sacrifice and love our spouses he didn't say, look, I'm a great scholar. You need to go live with your parents. He made life work so that he could honor the vows that he took and made his wife a home and cared for her until she died and sacrificially loved her for over 30 years. Now, saints, that's a man who understands what Christ has done for him and who is following Christ. Now, I've preached a long message, and I haven't said much about Jesus except that he gave himself for us. Men, women, we are all broken. Single people, you will struggle in different ways. But you know who can bear our burdens and forgive our sins? It's Christ. He has died for our sins and raised us from the dead. He is the one who will help in our marriages, in our church, and in our world. And saints, as we try to learn from Scripture how we are to be men and how we are to be women, let's never fail to look to Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Would you pray with me? Father, this is so hard. It's so easy to let our own sins blind us, my sins especially. I pray that you would help us to understand what your word is calling us to. Father, I pray on behalf of our men. Lord, I ask your forgiveness for failures in leadership. I ask your forgiveness for the abuse that is too prevalent in the church as well as outside the church. I ask for your forgiveness for laziness. And Father, I pray for your empowerment that as we see what you have called us to in Christ, 
that we would answer the call and step up and lead. Father, I pray on behalf of our women. I ask that you would strengthen them and help them. I pray that you would let them seek to understand from your word, not from me or not from anybody else, but from your word. I pray that you'd help them understand what it means to be a godly woman. A woman who will be a blessing to all who are around her. A woman, like in Proverbs 31, that laughs at the day of trouble because her hope is in you. And Father, I pray that you would take these parts of our culture that are so broken that, that we don't trust each other or love each other as we should, and I pray that here in our church you would bring them together in a beautiful way, that our church would show the world how much Jesus loves his church. And Father, I, I pray that as you forgive our sins, and empower our obedience, that you would fill us with joy. Bless the marriages who are here in our church. Bless those who are single, whether they're longing for you or longing for being able to be married. I pray that you would strengthen them in holiness and in perseverance. And I pray that as we submit to your word, we would be blessed deeply and richly. And I ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I want to dismiss you with a passage of scripture uh, from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. A lot of times this gets read at weddings. Uh, Paul is not talking about a wedding at all. He's talking about the church. And this is how Christians are to relate to one another within the church, men and women together. This is what he says. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, and I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we see face to face. Now I know in part, and then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Church, go in peace to love and serve the Lord.